Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and today's episode is one of a series on suicide prevention. My guest today is Julie Goldstein-Grummet, who is the EDC Vice President and an expert in behavioral health transformation, state and local community suicide prevention, and the use of evidence-based practices for suicide care in clinical settings. She translates complex topics into engaging and impactful resources for healthcare leaders, school leaders, and others. As director of the Zero Suicide Institute, she provides strategic direction and leadership for the Zero Suicide Framework and oversees the development, dissemination, evaluation, and effective implementation of the framework nationwide. She leads a team dedicated to ensuring that safe and effective suicide care practices are accessible to all via an online implementation toolkit. Julie Goldstein-Grummet holds a PhD in clinical psychology from George Washington University. She completed a postdoctoral fellowship in school mental health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine Center for School Mental Health. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Goldstein-Grummet. Hi, Julie. How are you? Hi, Leah. It's good to see you. I'm doing great. Thanks oh, for I having so, me. Oh, I so appreciate you making time for this. It, it's been a fun friendship getting to know you, and it happened kind of in a interesting way. <laughs> I think uh, I sort of fell into doing some suicide prevention work, came across the Zero Suicide website, reached out when we had some grant dollars, and then we met in Las Vegas at a conference. And uh, <laughs> I totally remember sitting down in that restaurant with you and being like, so let's talk about this. And here you are today, like a total leader in suicide prevention. It's pretty cool. Well, at that time, I think I had my head in the clouds a bit thinking like, oh, you can just do suicide overhaul prevention in, you know, a year. And well, you know, many years later, <laughs> it's an ongoing process, not a one and done for sure. Well, I just wanted to, you know, get started talking a little bit about zero suicide and, you know, maybe how did you kind of come into the field and talk a little bit about zero suicide? What is that? You know, I've always loved to do sort of implementation and systems change and evidence-based practices. When I was coming up in grad school for my doctorate in psychology, kind of that term evidence-based was just coming online. My early career was in school mental health, and I was kind of doing this split between some research and some in my postdoc, some research, some teaching, some implementation in schools with regard to early intervention and prevention across the continuum of things. But I always really loved this idea of system-wide change to really improve conditions for kids and making sure everybody knew their role and responsibility. My dissertation was on suicide, so I'd always had a strong interest in in suicide prevention. 
And then early on, when SAMHSA released grants in 2002 to start really doing suicide prevention in schools, I was the PI on that, and then the PI on a Garrett Lee Smith grant in D.C. Um, And then when that came to an end, I moved to EDC, the Education Development Center, where I work now. That was 10 years ago, like almost exactly to the day, and 2012. And have to admit, my interview, there was not a single mention of zero suicide. (laughs) It was about clinical care and leading the clinical work for the Suicide Prevention Resource Center that NBC was home to. And then the task force, the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, released a report about systems change in healthcare based on updating the national strategy for suicide prevention with really a recognition that healthcare systems had been left out of the first national strategy for suicide prevention. The first one that was released in 2002 had a strong community emphasis and certainly a strong public health approach, but it just left out healthcare systems and healthcare providers as a focus for suicide prevention. So the updated strategy in 2012 incorporated the need for systems change to really aim towards zero suicide as an aspirational goal, as well as training for providers to be competent, confident, well-trained, well-prepared to care for people at risk for suicide. And that was really the birth of that clinical care and intervention task force based on that report. And so when I got there, then we developed a toolkit and, you know, from that evolved zero suicide. So it's, you know, it hasn't been around for that long, but it most definitely, um, it just makes sense to really think about systems improvement and training and a comprehensive approach. Well, if anyone who's listening goes to the zerosuicide.com website, they're going to just see this incredible catalog of resources and If you're telling me that that all developed since 2012 in the period of, what, 10 years, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, and the website obviously wasn't first out of the gate. (laughs) It was the report of the task force that we realized, you know, reports, white papers aren't really enough typically to catalyze any system to say, oh, sure, I can operationalize this white paper. So So that's what we did was we really tried to operationalize what were the set of recommendations uh, when we first launched the toolkit in about 2014. And then we constantly are updating it and looking to have it evolve because we realized that systems need, you know, really a how-to. Like, what does this actually mean when, when you say, you know, really transform leadership or train your staff? It's not enough to say, okay, train your team in what you're doing, but How often and what do you mean train and who are you training and why are you training them? You know, we really try to drill into that and to take the guesswork out of it to make it really helpful for systems that are looking to launch their efforts. I think what I liked, and maybe it's because I really love organizational stuff because it helps me kind of with taking steps and making action. And when I stumbled into, I I literally, it was just, I don't know, I was Googling around as I was kind of transitioning into a new role to do some behavioral health change in our institution and came across Zero Suicide and wrote a grant and started looking at that this was actually kind of a framework of a how-to guide, if you will. I mean, it was way less simplistic than that, of course, but it was kind of divided into these seven kind of strategies and 
I love that. I just thought it was so helpful from an organizational standpoint to have kind of a roadmap on how to do that. So do you want to talk about the seven elements and what that is? Because, you know, I know that initially it was sort of a top down and now it's sort of more of a wheel model as far as where you can start. I have my own thoughts about that. I'll, I'll mention that once you talk a little bit about the elements, but let's start with that. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts about that too, because we're certainly always looking to iterate on it. It's not set in stone, but the reason we thought about these seven elements is I think the biggest takeaway message is that suicide prevention, and this is true if it's a community or a school or a healthcare system, requires a comprehensive approach. You can't pick one activity and say, that's my entire suicide prevention approach, and it's going to identify everybody and catch everybody and you know treat everybody. So what we did with Zero Suicide was really to think about what are the best practices in clinical care that if packaged together, right, if used as a bundle, routinely, consistently, every single time, have the research to suggest that they will drive suicide rates down. So each component of the zero suicide framework has evidence behind it that it absolutely works to drive suicide down. So when used as a bundle, people are getting optimal care. So there are core clinical components to to zero suicide. And the core clinical components are to screen people using an evidence-based standardized screening tool to do a risk assessment for anybody who screens positive. And again, using a risk assessment tool that is evidence-based, standardized, used every time somebody screens positive, followed by a safety plan. And that is also evidence-based. And there are several different versions of safety plans out there, as well as screening tools and risk assessment tools. And we're not advocating for one over the other, but what we are advocating for is nothing homegrown, you know, used, developed by somebody on the staff. There's research as to why these tools work. So we want to use these particular tools with fidelity every time as design. So doing a safety plan or a crisis response plan That includes reducing access to lethal means. We know it's really critical to have an immediate conversation about means safety and what the individual might use to kill themselves with and how to remove access during that critical period of time when when there's acute distress. We also need to treat the suicide directly. So historically, and even when I was in graduate school, The idea was treat the depression or the substance misuse or the relationship challenges or uncover the parent problems, and that would drive the suicide thoughts down. And again, over the last 20 years, I think the research has really emerged that there are treatment modalities that directly target the thoughts of suicide, suicide behaviors that drive those suicide um, behaviors down. So we need to be using those. And finally, the other clinical piece is really about care transitions and warm handoffs. We need to do caring contacts, reach out to people in between appointments. We need to link them to those appointments. We need to check in repeatedly, especially if there's a period of time in between those appointments or before seeing the next provider from discharge from the ER or from inpatient psychiatric units. We know that these caring contacts really work to help people feel connected and cared for 
and reduces their suicidality. So those are that's like the clinical bundle. But that alone is not what zero suicide is. That's a really core piece of it. But kind of wrapped around those clinical components is what is the implementation science of zero suicide. And that is, so the clinical pieces are kind of the what you're doing, but how you do it is just as important as what you're doing. So how do you do it? Well, zero suicide is about a culture shift. It's about transforming the system so that the system bears the responsibility to keep all patients and staff who work in the system safe and prepared and recognizing that suicide is a core, a suicide prevention is a core responsibility of that system. It requires leaders who are committed to that and accept that suicide prevention is one of their core responsibilities. Creating an environment that is the just culture with no blame so that if an adverse event does occur, that you're not looking to say, Julie, this was on you because you failed to do X, but rather if I lost a patient to suicide, that there's a system fix, that there's something in the electronic medical record, there's something in training, there's something that we as a system can look at to really, to shore up, to hopefully protect others in the future. So leadership and culture change is a critical piece of zero suicide as is training. You can't ask people to use these standardized tools without being trained about how do you use them. I'm sure we've all encountered people in our private life or in our professional life who say things as they're using a screener tool like, I'm really sorry, I have to give you this screener, but we have to ask everybody. So you're not suicidal, are you? Or anything like that. I've definitely encountered that in my life. And but it will look on the electronic medical record like you did for an audit, like you screened. Oh, no, you know, patient says no, 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 click, click, click. The essence of how you're doing that screener would get lost if we really only went by an audit of did these things happen or did they not happen? So that culture shift and that experience of being trained and having a competent, caring, confident, well-trained staff is really important. You can't just say the tools exist. And everybody in the system needs to be trained. Whether front office staff, they're the ones who also see patients. They schedule patients. Patients call to say, oh, I'm, I'm not able to make that appointment. And I know for myself, for my kids, like I know some of these staff pretty well. I probably spend more time chit-chatting with them than I might even with some of our physicians. And so you want everybody in the system to feel that they have a responsibility to keeping people safe. And that's good for them. And it's good for patients and safety. And there's no reason that somebody can be less prepared. So you have to train everybody in every tool, every the evidence-based approaches that you're looking to employ. And then improve is the last piece of the seven components. And that is really because you want to say, are we doing what we say we're doing? If we say we're screening at every visit, are we? If we say we're safety planning, everybody with a positive suicide risk, are we actually doing that? You really want to drill into continuous quality improvement to say, are we doing the things that we think we're doing? How well are we doing them? And where can we improve? You need to examine when adverse events happen and you need to track over time, you know, how well your patients are doing. Part of zero suicide includes a really robust suicide care management plan or a suicide care workflow. You need to know who's at higher risk. And for those who are put on your pathway of being at higher risk, 
are they getting a different set of care practices than people who aren't on that high-risk pathway? Are they getting those routinely and consistently? And how well are they doing? And how long are they staying on that pathway? Are those interventions working? Why or why not? And then how are you taking them off that higher risk pathway, right? That should be our goal is that there's this acute crisis during which we get this higher set of practices that really drive down those thoughts of suicide. We want to measure that. And then we want to ideally remove somebody from that high risk pathway and have a sense of how well we're doing and being transparent and sharing that with the team. And the last thing, Leah, I think I want to share when I say like what's different about zero suicide or what is really important, clearly there's the magic words, right? Evidence-based, fidelity, continuous quality improvement, culture change. Those are really important. But I also really want to express that it's, it's really critical to include the voice of lived experience, people themselves who have gotten care or treatment for themselves or their loved ones, what works, what doesn't work. I think it's really important that people with lived experience be part of the team, weighing in on, you know, how do you create policies, practices, training, and protocols that actually work? Whether it's the language, the way you're training, how do you address, you know, if you're going to call somebody who's on the high-risk pathway who misses an appointment, what is a really patient-centered way of doing that in a thoughtful, compassionate, and yet, you know, safety-focused way? So really lived experience is, is critical to how we see zero suicide being effective. Yeah, and it's really comprehensive. And again, for folks who are listening who are thinking like, how do I do this differently or better in my busy practice? Is this even doable? And I would take a step back and say, you know, these are the components. This is all the information, but it's organized in a way that it makes sense that you don't do everything first. You kind of look at it comprehensively and say, okay, if our end goal is to reduce suicide to zero, which is what the aspirational goal is, but if it's to do a better job in my practice, like where do we start? So in looking at those seven components, when I came to it, what I remember was making sure the leadership. So, you know, if you're in a practice, are your partners, you know, on board? If you're in an organization, is the CEO on board? So that leadership piece. And then there's the training element, which I'll get back to in a second. The identify that screening piece, engage you know, kind of that risk assessment treatment, where a lot of us are probably not going to do direct suicide prevention treatment like CBT, I mean, most of healthcare, but sort of how do we coordinate that? And then that transition, and finally, the improved quality. So I think the idea that you sort of do it from the top down makes some sense. I'll tell you, when we started, we had been doing the PHQ-9 since 2009, because it came out as a recommendation from the U.S. Prevention Task Force Services. Um, that we do that in kids 12 and up. Well, question number nine, which is a proxy for suicidal ideation, asks about, do you have thoughts that you'd be better off dead? So that was great. We were like, okay, we're going to do that. Well, nobody trained us. You know, we did that. We we're like, okay, this is a positive score because that's what the cutoff says. And oh gosh, they said they might be having thoughts they'd be better off dead. Go to the emergency room. And that that was all we knew to do. There was no other training to do that. So that's where we started. And so when you and I found each other, 
it was really, we had to go kind of backtrack to the train piece was, we, we had the lead piece. We were able to, you know, work on that and get some buy-in there, but it was the training piece that we spent an enormous amount of time on because not only was it about staff training, but it was about our own training. What does this mean? And I think in a lot of the work that I've been doing, you know, in different venues, but also on this podcast is for clinicians to understand that this is part of our job. And I know that it feels overwhelming, but these kids are coming to us. They're not going other places. I mean, they may at school, and I think schools are really working on that. There's a lot of federal funding going to trying and improving suicide prevention in schools, but they come to us and we can't just say, I don't, you know, I don't know how, or I don't do this. I don't have time. We're going to have to figure out how to make our system work for the kids that we serve. And I know that feels overwhelming to people who are listening. Like, I just can't do one more thing. For me, the zero suicide framework helped me say, okay, this is where I start. This is where I want to go. It was kind of a, a map. And I think when I first looked at it, it was a top down. There were, you know, you start with lead and you go through the bottom. And as I see it now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's now sort of more of a wheel that you really can start at any one place. But there is something to be said from starting with lead. And I remember when we first met, that was something you said, you know, this is, it does make some sense to do it that way. So I don't know if that is something you want to comment on. Yeah. I mean, I think you need to have the buy-in of leadership in order to transform an entire system, right? We've definitely seen a lot of passion, but from an individual clinician, like I want to do this. And by all means, you know, it's that passion that drives these change and that passion to adopt and implement this approach can come from anywhere, right? Doesn't have to come from the CEO of the company, but it can be hard to kind of rally the, you know, continuous quality improvement and changing the medical record and training everybody if you don't have leadership on board really committed to this is what we're going to do and we're going to like all point our, you know, ships in that same direction. So, you know, I think it's kind of both. And I think what we are trying to address is you don't have to work through it from top down, check, check, check. You can certainly start in that wheel. I think actually the most important piece of it is really not trying to deconstruct it but rather to see it as a bundle. And I think that was the rationale a lot for the way it looks as a wheel, you know, kind of it's interlocking puzzle pieces. And that is because it's no one singular piece that is now your suicide prevention effort. It's really the interlocking play of all of these that works together. So I think that's why we kind of tried to readjust the image is so that people didn't think if I do one of these, then I'm sort of good enough. But as you said, it is not something that you're going to do overnight. It is not one and done either. We certainly know that when leadership turns over or staff changes, then some of that attention to detail can definitely erode. And, you know, you say, well, why'd our rates go back up or, you know, what's going on? And it's because people dropped off, you know, they took their foot off the gas and thought it would just kind of roll along. And often that's not the case. In fact, this was built on other comprehensive approaches, one of which was the U.S. Air Force in the 1990s. And then the 1990s, when the U.S. Air Force addressed suicide prevention, it was a comprehensive approach. It was more within the community than healthcare alone. But not only did they drive suicide rates down, they also drove down drunk driving, interpersonal violence, you know, other kind of substances, you know, things that 
you can imagine have sort of that same set of shared risk factors or people are engaging in negative behaviors because they're like having an internal turmoil. Well, so it drove all these things down and then the leadership said, great, you know, and sort of stepped back. And then over the, what they found over the next few years is their rates went back up for all of those challenges, behaviors, because they stopped attending to detail. So, you know, definitely baking it in where it's consistent and there's policies and the training is seen as paramount and consistent and absolutely measuring, right? You have to keep doing data collection because you won't know that these shifts are happening and you want to try to catch them early. Well, and I think the other piece about data, and I'm not a data person, I'm just, my brain is just not wired that way, but thankfully there are other people that are. But for us, that was kind of the kicker. Once we could see consistently what the risks look like, how many people were experiencing symptoms of depression, how many were having thoughts that they would be better off dead, then we began to see like, yeah, we really do need to do something. This is not an insignificant number of people. And it was consistent. The part that just so surprised me was we looked at adults, we looked at youth, and then we also looked at pregnant women. And the numbers were consistent month to month to month within each group. So our kids, 20% had PHQ-9s of 10 or more. 15% had thoughts that they would be better off dead every month for a year. And it was the same in the adult population. The numbers were a little bit different. So once we had that, then we could make a case for this is why we have to do something. And and then I think the part that we next baked in, as you said, I like that term, was if we had a positive, then what? Did we do a risk assessment? Did we do a safety plan? Did we do? And that's the part where that's a harder piece, that actual change, because that takes a significant effort to, to do something differently. And and again, to to the listeners, you know, why does this matter? Do you have time? Is, you know, I like to think about it in that medical model. And I think we often use asthma because I don't know, that's something I can relate to. You know, for every kid that comes in with asthma, we have this way of assessing how bad is it? You know, how hard are they breathing? What's their respiratory rate? What's their pulse oximeter? Um, Do they respond to a nebulized treatment? Most of the kids that we see with those symptoms don't get admitted to the hospital. And it's rare that we'd have to call an ambulance to come and take a kid to the hospital because they're in dire straits. It happens, but it's rare. And my experience working with kids with suicidal ideation is it's somewhat similar, honestly. To have a kid sit in my office who is imminently at risk is unusual. Now, I'm not saying never, but it's unusual. Now, for the ED folks, that's a different story. It's a different presentation. But in the outpatient setting, I don't think it's that common that it's imminent risk. And I know Lisa Horowitz that did the Ask Suicide Screen would have all the numbers at the tip of her fingers, but that number in her research was also low. So I think that's somewhat reassuring to folks like, you know, you're not going to have to do those extreme measures, but you do have to have a process on how are you going to assess risk? And I think at minimum, because we're now screening anyway for depression and now Bright Futures has added that we screen for suicide, we have to add the next piece, which is risk assessment. You can't ask those questions and not then ask, how bad is it? What Because that leads you to those next steps. Like, what do I do next? Do mm-hmm. I do I send them home? And can I send them home? And my answer would be, yeah, most of the time you can if you have a plan and a process and you're you know set up for it. Just like if it's a kid with asthma, if they have a nebulizer, if you can send home with meds, 
you know, maybe they do a steroid burst and you have a follow-up. I mean, we know what to do with that and it's similar and we can learn this. And I think to build on that, first of all, as you said, you are seeing kids at risk. So to say it's not our responsibility and we're going to just ship them off to the ED, they're coming back to you, right? These are kids in your care. They're coming back, whether it's for some other kind of chronic illness or, you know, sports physicals or whatever. They're going to come back. So you should have something in mind as to how you're going to care for them. Parents trust you. They only see the ER doc once, but they see you for, you know, 20 years and they trust you. And I, there are interventions that work. You know, these things we're talking about, safety plans, reducing access to lethal means, caring contacts, following up treatments that target thoughts of suicide. These work. And we should definitely be helping parents to navigate how do we get kids into care? You know, what should I be looking for? You know, what's what kind of treatment? What are the questions I should ask when I'm interviewing mental health providers? To me, one of the biggest gaps that I think as a parent we experience when it comes to mental health is this sense of lack of agency or lack of knowing how to advocate. You know, it feels like you're in this vortex and you, you know, you're just kind of taking a number and calling into the black universe and you don't know what you're supposed to ask. And frankly, and unfortunately, a lot of providers are not trained in suicide-specific skills. And I'm talking about psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, you know, licensed family counselors. They don't have specific training in suicide skills because it's not a requirement for licensure. It's not a requirement in graduate programs. And so you get these wonderfully thoughtful compassionate clinicians who really want to do the best work they can and and they are but they don't have training in you know dialectical behavior therapy or collaborative assessment and management of suicide or you know cognitive therapy for suicide prevention right things that we know work and so as a physician as a pediatrician who gets to help educate parents you know you tell your Parents, I hope they wear a seatbelt and they have to wear a helmet and eat their green leafy vegetables and, you know, all those things. It's also, we trust you, right? I'm the parent of three tweens and teens and we trust you and we ask you questions. And so if you give us this two minute spiel about this, these are the things you might want to, that you should ask, or these are, you know, five clinicians I've referred to that I really trust for suicide specific care. That goes a long way. And I, I kind of think that's part of your job is to be educated on that and help. It doesn't mean that you're doing the DBT, but you should have a sense of what works just like you do for any other medical issue. And I wonder this sense of referring out like, oh, you're talking about suicide. I have to make a referral. You know, sometimes I think, well, what is that about? Is that like your own fear? Is it probably? I think big time, you know, and I think to your point, again, for those of us who are in the primary care seat is, you know, again, there's so much feeling like I can't do this. I don't have time. I'm not trained. Is imagine that you're on the other side. You're the parent with the child that you're worried about. Would you not want someone to say, hey, here's the plan. I know the right people to send you to. Let me ask you a few questions. And because the experience of having to go to the emergency room and it oftentimes you said, you know, the patients come back to you, they often come back to you right from the emergency room. They're not going to inpatient psychiatric care because most don't meet 
criteria for admission, but they're still struggling. And so now the parent's still with this sad child who is in despair and they're like, what do I do with this? And, you know, we can be that person that says, yeah, you know, this is common. Lots of kids go through this. You know, let's talk about what can you do? Like, how do we make your home safe? Let's talk about that. Who are the people that can help you kind of keep eyes on, you know, and to the kid doing a safety plan. And I'll put links in the show notes to resources for that. You know, for the kid, you're empowering them by saying, hey, you know, when you start having those thoughts, remember how you said you feel like you get sick to your stomach and and you start having those thoughts? Well, remember that safety plan we did? And one of the first things you said is that, you know, I like to watch cat videos that takes my mind off of things. Well, that's something you could try first. And then you said the next thing would be, um, you know, I like to go sit in this cozy chair in my living room and read a book that also brings me some calm. And then I can call my aunt. She makes me laugh. And so there's the stepwise thing that you can do. And it, it's kind of a relief for everybody. I did a training video and you could tell, even though it was a training situation, as I'm talking to the patient, the the actor, about the safety plan, you can visually see them relax and start talking about what they could do that makes them feel better, like watching Finding Nemo or something. And a smile appeared. It was as though that there was like a light at the end, like, oh, I do have some things I could do. You know, it's not all gloom and doom. I can feel better sometimes for a little bit. And then, of course, you have all the crisis information that, you know, if it gets bad, there's 988, you can do crisis text. So it's actually empowering to people. You're not doing it as the clinician. You're not doing all the work yourself. You're just handing some tools. And then you're you're checking back in, just like I would, you know, for a kid who had a really bad illness. And I call the parent the next day and say, hey, how did last night go? Because one is I'm worried about it, you know, true story. You know, (laughs) I'm thinking about it all night. Is that kid okay? Just like I would if it was a kid with suicidal ideation or a really bad asthmatic episode. And the parents relieved. And, you know, we have a follow-up appointment or we're going to check back with the specialist. So we have a plan. And then everybody can kind of, huh. And if it gets way worse, well, we know what to do then too. So for me, the whole zero suicide model and all the resources gave me kind of a I don't know, it actually made me feel hopeful. And it was a relief to me that there was a way I could do this differently. So you like totally stole my word because (laughs) I was actually going to use the word hope, but I'm going to use it a little bit differently. I'm so glad it makes you feel hopeful. And we've heard that a lot from a lot of providers who say, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Like this is what I went into the field for. Wherever you sit in the field of being a provider, many people say, you know, you went into this field to help people, to, you know, help people live fulfilling, healthy lives. And part of our job, I think, is when you have a, you know, a a child or a, a client in some distress is to provide them with hope. There are things that work to address their issue. It's your job as a provider to educate, but also to provide hope. And I think when, you know, my husband had prostate cancer. And as we began to meet with different physicians, we got a lot of education and a lot of information. You know, we got to decide, is he going to have radiation or beads or prostatectomy, right? Here's all the info and here's the data and here's what you have and why and your number. I think that we have to take the sort of opaqueness that we sometimes treat mental health with and really make it, there are interventions at work. So, Here's what a safety plan is. Here's why it works. 
and I can do a safety plan with you. And mom, when Leah comes to you and says she's feeling really agitated or those thoughts are increasing, here's what you do, right? It's not call 911, 988, go to the emergency department. It is, here's what your role is. Go back over the safety plan. She likes those cat videos. Sit with her. She likes to sit in her purple chair in the corner with that white snuggly blanket with the dog on her lap you know, looking at the video, she likes to have you nearby or she likes to hear you puttering in the kitchen so she knows she's not alone, right? Getting really specific so that it creates an image for mom and for the kid about how they're going to work together during those times of more acute distress. So it feels like this is a usable, meaningful, individualized plan that they can picture and that they can activate when they need to. If we do it as a form, and it takes, you know, four minutes and my safety plan looks like your safety plan looks like my 15-year-old safety plan. That's absolutely not how it was designed. It was designed to be super specific. It can take you 30, 45 minutes, an hour to make a really good safety plan. It's an intervention. But as you said, well, if somebody is having in the midst of an event in your office, an asthma attack, something else, you would do the intervention that you need to Right. to get the person healthy, even if they were there for a sports physical and you were like, oh, I guess we're going to scrap that and you know, address the asthma attack that's right in front of me. And this has to be the same thing. If a kid comes in for their routine you know, wellness exam, but suicide begins to be discussed and it's clear that they're at risk, then you pivot and you address this and totally. you sit with them and yeah. you do the safety plan, but you educate the family, you educate the kid, you offer them hope. This works. I've seen this before. And, you know, when we attend to it and we check in with you routinely and we find you a good provider and we're a team and here's how they address that suicide risk, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, good luck (laughs) and, you know, and you're given, it really has to be like, no, we've got this. There are things that work. I think that's the fear is that parents really don't know where to go. They don't know those questions to ask and they don't know what works. And so as the provider, I think that's, you know, our jobs is to to try to assume people know nothing, <laughs> assume this is all the first time, assume they have a million questions because parents want, you know, their kids to be healthy and safe. And it's terrifying to think that that's not the case, whether it's a mental health issue or a medical issue. And so really just like, I got this and here's how and here's what's next and what's next and what's next. I love that. I've got this. I mean, for me, that's when I do trainings with clinicians is that's what I want you to come away from is that you tell a patient, I've got this. I know what to do. I'm not freaked out. I'm not overwhelmed. I have a strategy. And and I think the to do a, a safety plan that takes 30 or 40 minutes for most of us is probably, I mean, that's difficult to do. But I do think that you can do a collaborative safety plan in a shorter amount of time, at least until you can get someone to a mental health professional that could do a little bit more in depth. I think you can do that collaboratively with the patient. This is always where I make my pitch for integrated behavioral health and health systems, I think just need to invest the funding, private practices, figure out the ways that you can pay a mental health professional to be in your practice because they can do this piece with you. And then it's you've done an amazing job if you can do that. There are ways that you can capture 
coding time because, I mean, now that this reality of our lives, you can code for time, you can code for extended time, you can actually code now if it interrupts your day, like if it took time from another patient appointment, you can bill for that. There are ways to recoup some of that. And I think the other is sort of how do we work within your group to say, hey, if this comes up for me, can you back me up? What, how do we tag team? But you have to have the discussion of not like we don't want to do this, but how are we going to do this in a way that's going to work? And it's not easy, but I think the more that you do it, the less scary it is and the less overwhelming because there are a lot of kids that when you do the questions are really more the, gee, I would never do that, but I just sometimes wish I wouldn't wake up. I think that's pretty common. And you know, there are the kids that are those super high risk. Those are not that common. The ones in the middle are tough. The ones who are pretty in distress, they're not in a great place. And those are going to take more time. But they're sort of the same as medical conditions where easy stuff's easy and the really hard stuff, you know, you punt to the hospital. It's the ones that take time and thought and that. But that's what we do. That's our job. That's what we're good at. And I think this is just an area where we really have to spend some time and kind of got to wanna, you know, and I mean, it's important that we want to, because, you know, we didn't really talk about epidemiology, but, you know, I think everybody knows that, or should know, suicide is the second leading cause of death in kids 10 to 24. So we can't just push this aside. And the AAP has a youth suicide prevention blueprint, which also has some nice clinical pathways, other resources, so I think between the zerosuicide.com and the AAP blueprint, there's really a nice dovetail there for skills and strategies. And, you know, I would, you know, put it out there to folks like you. Yes, you can do this and you should do this. It's important. Our, our kids want this. Our parents want it. I mean, if it was me and I took my daughter in and they said, go to the emergency room, and then I go to the ER and they sit there for hours and hours and then they send me home and I still don't know what to do. As opposed to, hey, Leah, I know this is really hard and scary. We've got some things. This is how we you know, are going to proceed. That would be a comfort to me in a time when I'm going to want a lot of comfort because it's, you know, who wants to think about losing your child to suicide of all things? And I think I completely agree with you. And I think parents want to know there are best practices that work. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of people think about suicide in this country. 12 million people a year think about suicide in this country, but they absolutely do not go on to kill themselves. But that's a lot of people in distress with something upsetting them enough to actually think about killing themselves. 20% of kids seriously think about suicide. That is, that is a lot. And at the same time, we're asking kids, you know, to go to school and participate in family activities. And that's a lot for them to bear. But there are interventions that work. And early intervention really helps, right? For any significant, you know, serious mental illness, the earlier we catch it and address it, the the better the trajectory. And so I think, you know, as a trusted adult in that kid's life and that family's life, it's really so critical to be kind of part of the team, an educator and aware of this is what happens. These are the interventions. This is how I can help you. This is how others will help you and really set a path so the family doesn't feel like they're just drowning and nobody's throwing them a you know, any kind of a life preserver, right? They need right. to feel like 
okay, you know, we see you and here's, and it may not be an easy journey. And it's certainly there are kids who really struggle. So I'm not trying to minimize that in the least. And it's terrifying, but but what you don't want to feel like as a parent is I look, I don't know, here's a list of 10 providers. Good luck. I I hope. Right. Well, and I think the other thing is that, you know, you don't have to go this alone. One is if your practice is all kind of trained up, everybody's going to kind of be looking out for this kid. I'm not saying you advertise it, but, you know, your staff is aware, you know, maybe you have some way of identifying a kid that's at risk so that when somebody calls, they're thinking about that. You know, your partners know that they're backing you up like, oh, by the way, I'm a little bit worried about this kid. I'm going away for a week. Will you check in? You know, there are things that we do for our patients for all kinds of things. But I I think the thing for me, the biggest takeaway is conveying that there are things that work. I love that because you know, as clinicians, we want to do stuff that helps and that's works. And, you know, we base what we do on science and that we can also tell parents that, yeah, this does, this does help. There is evidence and research that shows that people do better if we do these things. So, and I think the other piece, and and not that this is why we should be practicing this way, but it does actually reduce our liability if we're screening if we can document that we did a risk assessment, that we did safety planning, you know, I've heard an attorney speak twice about this, that, you know, he's like, I don't have a case to make much when everything's been done to the to the best standard practice. And the thing to add is removing access to lethal means. Yes, we yes. We know yes. that if you can remove access to lethal means, then the risk for suicide goes significantly down, yeah. right? So having a very clear conversation about what mm-hmm. is the means and, you know, working with the parent and the kid about where you're going to lock up those means, remove it from the house, you know, whatever the the means are during this time of acute distress, because having that time is an absolute, and documenting that as well, both it protects your liability, but it also just protects the the family. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. That is super important. And this is where I want to put in a plug for the CALM course, Counseling Access Lethal Means course. You can do online. It is on the Zero Suicide site. You can just Google CALM suicide prevention. It is well worth your two hours. It really is helpful, I think, motivational interviewing strategies about how to have those hard conversations and make it about safety. This is not, you know, I'm taking away your right to bear arms. This is, I'm helping you keep your kids safe. How can we do that together? Right. And, you know, I've mentioned my kids who just started school again. So obviously it's on my mind, but, you know, my 15 year old daughter was a sophomore in high school. We most definitely had the conversation about not getting in a car if you've been drinking or a friend's been drinking, right? We're very comfortable in this country now that most of us, hopefully about taking the keys away from somebody who's been drunk so that they can't drive, right? Being very clear about having a designated driver. No, you can't have your keys. We have to think about this conversation about, about removing access to lethal means in the same way. This is public safety. You wear a seatbelt when you drive, a helmet when you ride a bike, you take the keys away from the drunk driver, and you remove access to lethal means when somebody's in acute suicide risk. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't feel... We have to get as comfortable having that conversation the way we do about wearing a seatbelt or taking the keys away from the drunk driver. This is what we do. I love you. I care for you. This is how I keep you safe. This is what we're going to do. And that's true whether you're the parent, the friend, the spouse, or the physician. Like, yep, this is part of my job in, in keeping you safe. We have these hard conversations, 
but I can practice in front of a mirror if I need to, but I'm going to, that's my job. Yeah. It's the, it's the safety checklist. And I, you know, maybe for clinicians, it's maybe you do some role play in your office, you know, at a, one of your meetings and talk about like, let's, let's see what this would look like. Um, so I, I think those are all really practical things. Well, I really appreciate your time, Julie, and the work that you do. And I'm so glad that our paths crossed and, you know, that we have an opportunity now to share um, this with listeners, because I know that clinicians are seeing kids who have suicidal ideation that are at risk. And it, you know, the pandemic, a global pandemic was terrifying, is terrifying for everyone. And we're there to keep our kids safe. And when we couldn't do that. We couldn't keep the world safe for them. That's scary. And so this is a way we can keep our kids safe. We can help them with this. So I appreciate you and everything you you do. And uh, thanks so much. Yeah, no, I've learned so much just getting to work with you too, Leah, and really admire and very much respect the work that you do, the messages that you've been sharing, the way that you're educating everybody around you. It's really just a pleasure to get to be in your orbit and get to Oh, work. thanks. Oh, Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot you. coming from you. Well, listen, Thank have a great day and keep doing the work you're doing. Thank you. You too. I know these are all really big ideas and might not seem practical for a primary care setting, but I want you to think about the components of change that the Zero Suicide Framework offers because I think it really helps guide implementation change that you can actually practically do. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you to Julie for her time today and to the entire Zero Suicide team at EDC for offering guidance and support for system change and zero suicide implementation and for our journey here in Kalamazoo. Number two, zero suicide is an aspirational goal and a methodology for suicide prevention. In 2012, the Action Alliance included zero suicide as part of the national strategy to transform healthcare systems. It was really a focus on healthcare as a portal for getting to patients who might be at risk of suicide. Number three, zero suicide is a bundle of strategies that include both clinical components and implementation components. So strap on your seatbelt. This is a roadmap to better care. Number four, here are the seven components. Lead, train, identify, engage, treat, transition, and improve. You can start at any spot, but having done this work, I would highly recommend starting with lead, making sure that you have buy-in at the top, and then training, and really focus high-quality training on all of your staff, all of your partners, and, and really including administration in these trainings. Everyone needs to know their role. Number five, many of you are already doing the identify piece. You may be using the PHQ screening as we were, but with the new Bright Futures guidelines to add suicide screening, this is a perfect opportunity to use TRAIN to implement suicide-specific training using tools such as the Ask Suicide Screen Questionnaire or the Columbia Screener. Number six, clinical components include screening, risk assessment, safety planning, lethal means, safety, care transitions, handoffs, and caring contacts. I know that sounds like a lot, but when we break it down and think about other medical conditions, there are multiple components to our care management. Same thing here. 
Number seven, implementation components include training a competent, caring, and confident staff. Yes, that's us too. Continuous quality improvement and data collection and fidelity to the model. Number eight, zero suicide is a cultural shift. The system hospital practice bears the responsibility to care for patients using evidence-based strategies that work. These are not homegrown tools. All of the tools and methods are backed by research. It's important that we're not making up our own stuff. Number nine, consider the medical model like asthma. We already know what to do, how to do it, and when. Suicide prevention is the same. You honestly are already doing the work. Zero Suicide and the AAP Blueprint for Suicide Prevention both offer tools to do best practice suicide-specific care. Number 10, for me, Zero Suicide offered hope and was a relief. It was a bit overwhelming, I'll be honest, when I first looked at the website, but I didn't have to come up with my own processes for better care. What Julie said, though, is most important. Zero Suicide offers parents and patients hope that there are things that work. Number 11, I love this scripting. I've seen this before, and these are the steps that we can take together that work. Then offering safety planning, lethal means safety counseling, coordinated care, and follow-up. Number 12, before becoming overwhelmed that this is too much, too hard, step into the parent and patient shoes and imagine being sent to the emergency room or handed a list of therapist names to face the despair and fear on their own. This is our job and we have to figure out how to do this better together. Number 13, we can't lose sight of the numbers that the second reason kids die is suicide and that 20% of kids think about it. The why is big and and it's up to those of us who care about kids to speak up and look at why our kids are sad and desperate. We are their safety net. We are the helpers. Number 14, I haven't forgotten about you. Our reality is a hard one and but you're amazing and skilled and caring. Next week's episode is just for you. So stay tuned. Thank you as always for listening and I so appreciate what you're doing. I know the work is really challenging, but our kids are depending on it. Take care and I look forward to you joining me for next week's conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.